So uh, Genesis chapter 41, that's in the first dozen or so pages of the Bible, if you're using one of the Bibles in the seats. Last Sunday, we began looking at the question, what's the Bible about? I can't see the people on this side. Let's see. I think that's as far as I can go. Um, we saw that one way to answer that question, the question, what's the Bible about, is, is to look at two of the main strands of the DNA of the Bible, which weave themselves all the way through the Bible as significant and central themes. And we saw that one of those strands is covenant, and a second strand is kingdom. And for the last two weeks, we looked at covenant. And this week and next week, we're going to look at kingdom. Again, I'm drawing on a, a book and some other materials called Covenant and Kingdom. And a key story which introduces the theme of kingdom in the Bible is the story that we're looking at this morning, the story of Joseph. It starts in Genesis 37, and it runs down all the way through chapter 50, although we'll only get to chapter 41 today. And in this story, we see how Joseph learns to hear God's word, to uh, see what God is doing around him and through him, and to become God's representative, to become one through whom God can express his kingdom, God's kingly reign in the world, which we've been singing about and thinking about this morning. So what's the process of this for Joseph and for us? How does it work? What is it that God needs to do in our hearts now that he's formed a covenant relationship with us so that God can use us for his kingdom purposes in the world? Because it starts with covenant. Covenant is, is always first, but out of that covenant flows kingdom. Once God has established our identity in God and, and we know that we're God's children, then the question is, how do we go from a place of being forgiven sinners in Christ uh, and welcomed into God's family to actually then being invited to participate in the family business in, in doing the work of Christ? Okay, so that's what we're going to look at, and uh, we'll see what the story of Joseph can teach us about that. We begin in Genesis 37 with Jacob's family. Jacob is the grandson of Abraham, who we looked at for the past couple weeks. Jacob has inherited the covenant that God made with Abraham and then passed on to Isaac's, uh, Abraham's son Isaac, who was then Jacob's father. So Jacob's the grandson. And this covenant family to whom these promises were made is now finally starting to grow because Jacob has got 12 kids. God has blessed Jacob. God has been uh, a shield to Jacob, his protector. God has been a reward to Jacob, his provider, as God had promised and proved to be to Abraham, his grandfather before him. And, and that blessing... Um, is because of God's commitment to Jacob as God's covenant partner, the blessing is not because Jacob was such a great guy. Because actually, Jacob has a lot of faults. For one thing, he's a terrible father. He plays favorites. And his son Joseph happens to be his favorite. Now in that culture, there was one child in, in every family who was singled out as special. That was generally the firstborn son of the family. 
that was cultural. The firstborn was groomed to be the eventual leader of the family. He, he was given an extra share of the family's honor and possessions. And, and that wasn't considered favoritism. That was just considered normal in that culture. But in this case, Jacob has passed over his firstborn son and his secondborn son. In fact, he's passed over the first 10 of his sons and he shows his favor to his 11th born son, Joseph. And as a symbol of his favor, Jacob gives Joseph this lavish special coat to wear. Now, this family is a shepherd family. They live out in the pastures. They normally wear whatever was the equivalent back then of overalls. But not Joseph. To Joseph, Jacob gives a specially ornamented robe, a robe that a prince would wear. This was the clothing of management, not the clothing of labor. (laughs) It suggested that Joseph was too good to roll up his sleeves and to do work like everyone else. No, Joseph was, was daddy's little prince. He was being raised and groomed to supervise and oversee all the others. Jacob's favoritism here goes way beyond what was appropriate even in that culture. And you can just imagine how the other brothers feel about it. They feel overlooked, they feel belittled, they feel slighted. And and Joseph makes it even worse because he's arrogant, he's a braggart, and a show-off. Later on in the story, we find out that Joseph is gifted. He's good-looking, he's well-built, and all his brothers hate him. He's the pretty boy who daddy likes better than anybody else. And, And even though he's younger than almost all of them, he's been set up as the boss over all of them. And, and so his brothers absolutely despise him. Now, now it turns out that, that Joseph's um, gifting includes a gifting for the prophetic, a, a unique ability to hear from God. God gives Joseph dreams and, and visions of what will happen in the future. And Joseph is able to understand them and to interpret their meaning. But in Joseph's arrogance and in his immaturity, he unwisely shares the dreams he has about himself and his family with those around him. Joseph sees in a dream himself and his brothers gathering up sheaves after harvest time. And, and the sheaves of his brothers bow down to his sheaf. And his sheaf stands up and theirs bow down. And Joseph shares this dream with his brothers. And they're absolutely incensed. Here, here Joseph, he, he's seeing the future and he tells his brothers, and they know exactly what it means. And they say, do you intend to rule over us? And so we as the reader get some foreshadowing here that Joseph, this young man who's a child of the covenant, might, in time, in God's economy, become a ruler and an agent of God's kingdom. Then Joseph has, has another dream, the, the dream that all 17-year-old boys have. It, it's not about girls in this case, but it's about being the center of the universe. <laughs> Joseph sees the stars and the sun and the moon, and they're all revolving around him. They're bowing down to him. And he thinks it's wonderful. And so he decides to share that with his dad and his brothers too. (laughs) You'll never guess what I dreamed last night. And and they listened to to him with absolute open-mounted disbelief. (laughs) To what level is this boy's arrogance going to reach? 
And so we skip forward then to the next phase in the narrative. The, the boys are off. They're moving from place to place with uh, their, their flocks together, uh, watching their flocks. And Joseph, being, being the supervisor, is, is back, at his home ba- back at home base with his parents. And Jacob tells him to go out and find his brothers and, and bring back a report of how they're doing. And so Joseph sets off to find them. He, he goes on this task through the scrubland to find this bunch of shepherds and their sheep. And what does Joseph wear? Not his overalls, but his suit and tie, his princely robe. It makes you wonder where this guy's identity is. (laughs) Well, the brothers see him coming wearing his fancy robe, and they say, let's kill him. Let's kill him. (laughs) Talk about a dysfunctional family. They're all conspiring against their little brother. But Reuben, the firstborn, says, well, well, hold on. Killing's a bit extreme. Let's just rough him up for now. <laughs> we all hate him, but let's not go as far as murder. So they throw him into a nearby cistern, a, a, a deep pit, and they leave him there. And, and you can imagine Joseph's down there. He's panicked. His brothers have turned on him. He, he wants to get out. He's brokenhearted. He's scared. They've taken away his special coat. And then his brothers happen to see some traders come by, and they say, that's what we'll do. We'll sell him as a slave to the traders. And they do. And they concoct a story about his death, and they smear goat's blood on his coat, and they take it back to Jacob. And, and their dad is brokenhearted. He's, he's utterly inconsolable, understandably so. But, but he, he, he talks like none of his other brothers even mean anything to him. He has nothing left because he doesn't have Joseph. And, and meanwhile, Joseph is taken to Egypt. And there in chapter 39 now, we're up to 39, it says the most amazing thing, chapter 39, verse 2. You can sort of follow along in your Bibles as, as you want as we go on this speed trip through the story of Joseph. Chapter 39, verse 2, Joseph says, or the, the story says, the Lord was with Joseph and he prospered. You see, the terms of the covenant, despite all that was going on, the terms of the covenant have not changed. The terms of of the covenant, God's covenant with this people, are utterly reliable. Even though the covenant family is in shambles, even though Joseph is an arrogant, snotty, spoiled brat, and, and now he's been utterly betrayed by his nasty, abusive brothers, Even though Joseph has been taken to a foreign land into captivity in chains as a slave, nevertheless, the Lord is with him and he prospers. Because he's a child of the covenant and God is faithful. And and so God blesses him. God puts opportunities in his path. God shows favor and grace to him and gives him favor with whoever he meets. Sure, Joseph has to work hard for it. Joseph has to diligently use the gifts God gives him, and Joseph does do that. And as he does, God causes him to prosper. And Joseph realizes, little by little, that God is with him because Joseph sees the favor and grace that God is giving him. You know, covenant children aren't supposed to live in a spirit of poverty or a spirit of scarcity. Jesus does say, blessed are the poor in spirit. But being poor in spirit is different from having a spirit of poverty. 
being poor in spirit means being broken in spirit. It means recognizing wholeheartedly that, that, that we're never able to do the, the things that God asks us to do or, or to be what God calls us to be without God's grace and without God's power. Our weakness, our, our fallenness, our, our liability to sin. We recognize all this in our hearts. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. But that doesn't mean that we have a spirit of poverty. It doesn't mean that, that God's not going to bless us. Because if we're part of God's covenant family, then we expect that God will bless us. It may or may not be material blessing, but God will bless us. God will give us resources and opportunities, will give us uh, his favoring hand so that we will prosper in the things that God calls us to do. Why? So that we're in a position to be a blessing to others. Because that's what being part of the covenant family is about. It's about being blessed so that we can be a blessing to the world. That's where it all began back in Genesis 12 with Abraham and God's promise to him. So Joseph, uh, even though a slave, he prospers. He's blessed in the house of his new master, Potiphar. You might know the story in chapter 39 of what happens next. We actually heard it told. Potiphar's wife recognizes that Joseph is blessed, that he's handsome, that he's well-built. And so she starts developing various strategies to get close to him and then to seduce him. But Joseph is in tune with what it means to be a part of God's covenant family. And he knows that that means, as we saw last week, to walk before God and to be blameless. And so Joseph runs from this temptation. If you can't fight the temptation, then flee the temptation. And so Joseph runs away. And Potiphar's wife is upset. She's been thwarted. She's been spurned. And so she puts together a story about how he tried to rape her. And now I'm not sure that Potiphar actually believes her because if he had, I'm guessing Joseph would have suffered a fate worse than just prison. Uh, maybe Potiphar's seen this sort of behavior out of his wife before. I, I don't know. But as head of security for Pharaoh, Potiphar has in the basement of his house, his living compound, a special jail where particular prisoners would be put who he needs to keep an eye on as head of security. And so Potiphar is, or, sorry, Joseph is put there. And before long, Joseph becomes the trustee of the jail. Joseph is prospering even in this place of extreme captivity. He, he came as a slave and now he's a prisoner and a slave. But the Lord is still blessing him nonetheless. Now, what is God doing here? Well, God, God's blessing Joseph, but God's also trying to do something in Joseph's heart, Joseph's character. So that Joseph will become the kind of person, not only who's blessed, but who will become a blessing to others, instead of just to himself. And the thing in in Joseph's heart that God also wants to do in your heart and my heart, is the very thing that's necessary for us to be effective kingdom representatives. God wants to move Joseph from the center of his own universe, where everything revolves around him, to its edge. God wants to move Joseph from the center to the edge so that God can be in the center. And if God is able to do that, 
then Joseph will see the fulfillment of the kingdom future that he dreamed about. If God is able to, to do that in you and me, we will also see the coming kingdom break out more and more in our lives and through our lives. We'll see people come to know Jesus. We will see people set free. We will see the poor fed. We will see people healed and made whole. We will see joy restored to the downhearted. We'll see the kingdom breaking in. Because you see, the kingdom needs a conduit. The kingdom needs a door, and that door is a heart that is humble, a heart that is poor in spirit. The, the door for the coming kingdom is a heart which is open to the reality that God is at the center of the world, not us. Right now, Joseph's picture of himself is still that he's at the center of the universe and everything revolves around him. Well, then Joseph has a couple people join him in prison. The baker and the butler, who's the cup bearer. And uh, Pharaoh may have suspected a conspiracy here with these two guys because the baker makes Pharaoh's food. And the cupbearer was supposed to take a taste of it and, and to sample the king's wine before he gave it to him to make sure it wasn't poisoned. And, and so these two key figures both land in Potiphar's custody. And, and they're wondering if this is the end of them. And in their stress, they both have dreams and they come to breakfast one morning, and they're both depressed, and they're, they're disturbed. And in that culture, people took dreams seriously. They assumed that they contained important messages. And, and Joseph, who's in charge of the prison, though still a prisoner, is getting them their breakfast maybe. And, and he notices how disturbed they both are. And picking up the story now in chapter 40, verse 8, they answer, We both had dreams, but, but there's no one to interpret them. And then Joseph says to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. Now, a journey has taken place here in Joseph. It's a journey that's taken 11 years. Joseph came to Egypt as a slave at the age of 17, and now he's 28. He may feel like the years of his youth have been squandered and lost. He didn't get to go to college. He uh, didn't, didn't get to have a Snapchat account. You know, all that stuff with young people. Enjoy it. But, but in these lost years of, of the prime of his youth, God has been taking Joseph on a journey. And the journey is this. There's just enough room now found at the center of Joseph's life that the Lord is at the center with him. Do not interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. Joseph is now happy to share the center with God. We'll see this more clearly a little bit later. This is progress. And so they tell Joseph their dream. Good news for the cupbearer, bad news for the baker. And then Joseph pleads with the cupbearer, please don't forget me here. See what you can do to get me out. But the cupbearer forgets. More disappointment. More waiting for Joseph in prison. Two full years go past. And then in chapter 41, Pharaoh has two dreams. He sees seven fat, beautiful cows coming up out of the Nile. And, and, and then he watches as they're devoured by seven mangy, scrawny cows. He also sees seven wonderfully luscious heads of grain that are then devoured by seven skinny, withered, windblown heads. 
Again, the dreams were revered in that culture and, and Pharaoh senses that these dreams contain an important message and he's disturbed because his counselors and wizards and wise men can't interpret the dreams for him. And, and as the cupbearer is hearing about these dreams, it finally dawns on him. Oh yeah, I remember a guy who could interpret dreams. I, I was supposed to do something about that now that I think of it. Well, well, I guess this is the moment. So he tells Pharaoh about Joseph and, and about how Joseph interpreted his dream. And Pharaoh says, well, go get him. And, and they go and they get Joseph. He's still right there in prison where the cupbearer had left him. And they shave him and they wash him. They clean him up. They give him some new clothes and they bring him in. Thirteen years have passed for Joseph in slavery. Joseph is now 30. In Jewish eyes, 30 was the age of maturity. The age when, when you were fit for leadership. And, and Joseph's time of preparation is now completed. He's 30 years old. And let's read what happens then. Chapter 41, verse 15. Pharaoh says to Joseph, I had a dream and no one can interpret it. But I've heard it said that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. And in verse 16, listen to Joseph's reply. I cannot do it. But God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. I cannot do it. Does this mean Joseph has lost his skill at interpreting dreams? No. Does it mean he's lost his prophetic gift that God had given him? No. Does it mean that he's suddenly lost his confidence? No. But what's happened is this. Through Joseph's suffering, through the journey, through the difficulty... Joseph has moved from the center of his universe to the edge, and God has taken up residence on the throne alone. I cannot do it, but God will give the interpretation to Pharaoh. And with these words, Joseph interprets the dreams as God enables him and gives Pharaoh advice on how to respond and finds himself in charge of a kingdom. Just like he had dreamed so many years before. Joseph now suddenly finds himself in a place from which he is now able to save and to bless his own family and many other peoples too. To be a blessing to the nations. Do you see the journey? Do you see what it is that God wants to do in our hearts? Those of us who are his covenant children. God longs to bring more of his kingdom, to entrust it to his covenant people, uh, to be agents, to be representatives. God longs for people to meet his son Jesus and to hear the good news about how people can be reconciled to God. God wants those bound in destructive habits or despair or discouragement to be set free, to be given hope and joy. God wants what's broken to be put back together again. God wants the oppressed to be defended and, and um, res uh, restored and set free. So who's going to do it? Who's going to represent God? Who are going to be the hands and feet of God to accomplish all this? Well, if you're willing to be a kingdom representative, if you want your life to be a conduit for the kingdom, if you want your heart to be the door where the future that God has stored up for us breaks into the present so we experience a taste of what we're waiting for, then you have to move from the center 
of your world. I have to move from the center of my world. You see, God wants his people to have hearts through which the future that's stored up for us can begin to come now. The future that's free from sin, the the future that's free from suffering, that's free from sadness and Satan and any other S that you can think of. Through which that future can begin to come now. That's what the kingdom of God is. It's that future which we will one day enjoy perfectly and fully in heaven, beginning to break into the present now as Jesus taught us to pray, let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. That kingdom which Jesus came and showed, we read about in the gospels and then taught his disciples to do what he had been doing and even greater things than these. God wants to do that, but I think for many of us, the door of our hearts are cracked open so little that God can barely squeak through them. It's humble hearts which are swung open wide. Because the doors of the kingdom, the conduits through which the future comes pouring back into the present are humble, open hearts. Open to receiving and sharing a taste of that amazing future now and taking no credit for it ourselves. These are hearts like Joseph's heart. Joseph was a dreamer. He knew that God had a glorious kingdom future in store. But Joseph also had to become humble to realize finally that that he couldn't do it. Only God could do it. And likewise, we need to dream. We need to dare to believe that, that God has a glorious future in store still. One day, every sickness will be healed. One day, all sadness will give way to joy. One day all oppression will end. One day everyone will be set free. One day everyone will see Jesus face to face and taste the fullness of how good God is. But even as we wait for that and we long for that, God wants to give tastes of that now. God wants his future kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, to come on earth now. So people can, can taste it and can say, oh, God is good. I'll believe in God. And so God is looking for doors. God is looking for conduits. God is looking for ways that his future can break through so that people can get a window into heaven. And that's what his covenant people are supposed to be. Blessed to be a blessing. Agents of his kingdom. But to become that, like Joseph, God has to move us from the center of our worlds so that God can be the center. And the truth be told, that's a long process, right? It's a journey. It's a battle. Every day. Just about every day I wake up finding myself back at the center of my world. And and I sit there and I I read my Bible, I pray to God, and, and God reminds me, no, you're not the center. You're not the center. And I, and I think on the one hand, but I want to be. I, I, I think I know better than you what should happen. But on the other hand, God, if you're the center, then that's a big relief. <laughs> because it was going to be a big responsibility for me to try to run everything. So, what is God's word trying to tell us? It's trying to say this. First, covenant. You're a child of God by by a covenant of grace if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ. 
And this is a gift given to you, conferred on you. You didn't earn it. You can't earn it. But it's a gift. Covenant. Second, kingdom. Because you are God's child, God wants to involve you in the family business. To give you a purpose and a role in the things that God is about and that his son Jesus was about. Because you are God's child, God wants to fashion your heart so that you can be his agent and his representative so that through you, God can rule. But that means a journey. It was for Joseph. It will be for us. From the center of our world to the edge of our world so that Jesus can be alone at the center. So, as we close, question. Where are you on that journey? In what area of your life are you afraid to vacate the center, to get off the throne, to slide over from beside the steering wheel? And what surprising goodness might God be able to bring about if you did let him be in the center there? Let's pray. God, thank you for your word, for the amazing story that it tells about what you're doing in the world and how you've invited ordinary people like us to participate way beyond our imaginations. And yet, God, we have illusions of grandeur. We all are born just wanting to be at the center of everything. Um, We confess that to you. And we pray that you would show us that although we're often afraid to let go and let you be at the center, that um, you bring incredible goodness and good surprises when we do. I pray that you would continue in us that work of making us your children, not only in name and commitment, but also children in character and reality and experience. In Jesus' name, amen.